You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Lord, we just come this morning and just want to humble ourselves before you as we come to your word. Lord, we just fix our gaze on you and and look at you in your holiness and in your glory in your splendor, in your purity, and in your righteousness. Lord, as we do that, we get a good perspective on us and all of our unrighteousness, all of our unholiness. But Lord, I pray that as we go through your word today, Lord, that you would just do that radical work of the Spirit where your goodness and rightness and holiness and purity is placed upon us because of what you did on the cross. We come in weakness this morning. We come just hurting. We come with pride. We come with sin. We come with baggage and bondage. But Lord, we come to you who's able to remove all of those things and to bring healing. And just as Matthew chapter 12 says, the prophecy of the Messiah, that you would come in gentleness. Lord, you would not break a bruised reed, and you would not quench a smoking flax. And so, Lord, in this place, come with the the gentleness that you have, and yet come with the power that you have that's able to transform us and change us and conform us to be more like you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, do that in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 1. A defendant was on trial for murder in Philadelphia. There was strong evidence indicating that he was totally guilty. And yet there was no corpse ever found. In the defense's closing statement, the lawyer, knowing that his defendant, his client, was doomed to be convicted, resorted to a little trick. He stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for you all. The lawyer said as he looked at his watch, within one minute, the person presumed dead in the case will walk into this courtroom. He looked toward the courtroom door. The jurors, somewhat stunned, all gasped and looked on eagerly. One minute passed and nothing happened. Finally, the lawyer said, actually, I lied. I made all of that up, that whole previous statement. But you all looked with anticipation. I therefore put it to you that there is reasonable doubt in this case as to whether anyone was killed and insist that you return a verdict of not guilty. The jury was clearly confused. They retired to deliberate. A few minutes later, the jury returned and pronounced the defendant guilty. But how, inquired the lawyer, you must have some doubt. I saw you all look at the door. The foreman of the jury stood up and said, oh, we did look, but your client didn't. You didn't get it. That's okay, though. (laughs) Romans is a great legal treatise where in the first three chapters, the prosecuting attorney named Paul shows us our guilt and our depravity. And he does such a great job that every mouth that would try to defend himself is shut and stopped short before a holy God. 
we're proved guilty before that holy God. We obviously need salvation as you read Romans 1 through 3. But then Paul switches to be kind of a defense attorney of sorts. And he shows us the practical solution of how we are freed from guilt and condemnation from this just judge. The gospel is shown with power. And today, as we look at the key verses in the whole book, verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, we see justification, redemption, reconciliation, sanctification, and glory. All different awesome aspects of salvation preached to us today. We're going to look at three key things from chapter six, uh, verse 16 through 18. We're going to look at righteousness. We're going to look at faith. And we're going to look at wrath. Lately, my little girl, she's learning how to talk. And this is what she does every time I, I walk into a room. She goes, hi, woey. And then I go, I'm not woey, I'm daddy. So she goes, hi, woey, daddy. Okay. So all week long, I'm thinking of righteousness and wrath. And I just can't help but hear her say, Righteousness and wrath, okay? So we're going to throw faith in there as well today. The key verses of the book of Romans, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written the just shall live by faith. Today, we're going to look at the word righteousness, which speaks of, speaks of equity and justification. It's a legal tradition that deals with fairness and ethics. Here we see the phrase in verse 17. Last week, we studied more verse 16. Today, we're going to study more verse 17. We see the phrase righteousness of God underline it, own it, and know it. It's a phrase repeated again and again and again in Romans. And it's only seen one other time in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So, in the gospel, verse 17 tells us, the righteousness of God is revealed. The justice of God is revealed. Now, what is the righteousness of God? Three things. Number one, it's an attribute. It's one of the characteristics of God. And it speaks of his faithfulness to promises. It speaks of his justice. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, it speaks to the retributive justice. Now, if we read the book of Romans, and Paul only means retributive justice as he says, the righteousness of God, then we're kind of left condemned, dead in the water, judged, okay? But that's not all that the righteousness of God speaks to. Secondly, it speaks of an announcement, the announcement of a right status through faith. This is the good news of the gospel, to preach something is to herald something. And as we preach and herald the good news, we declare that one can have a right status with God. Thirdly, the righteousness of God speaks of an activity. 
Who doesn't like activities? It speaks of God's saving action. The gospel is action-packed. And the righteousness of God is action-packed. Speaking of his saving intervention, he's the hero that's come to save the day. As Tim Chaddock said, God who is in the right in his activity of making people right results in a right standing of man before God. And there's a whole lot right with that. The righteousness of God has been called the great exchange by Martin Luther and other forefathers of the faith. It's our sin exchanged for his righteousness and life. Second Corinthians 5.21, the only other place in the New Testament outside the book of Romans where the righteousness of God is mentioned, and I hope you have it memorized. But it says this, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become, let's say it together, the righteousness of God in him. Is that awesome or what? That's the great exchange that God the Father made God the Son, Jesus Christ, who never knew sin to be totally and absolutely sin on our account. That we might become that purity, that holiness, that rightness, that righteousness of God in Jesus. At the cross, God dealt with his son as if he had lived the sinful life so that he could deal with us as if we lived the perfectly righteous life. To be righteous would be that you are perfectly acceptable according to his standards and that you would be able to keep that status. Now the world, we all think that we're righteous by our own standards, don't we? We've got our own little book of qualifications that make us right in our sight and everybody else's sight. How much we work, how much we make, you know, if we've gone green yet or not, you know, if we recycle a bunch, you know, if we've been an altar boy or if we've become a monk or something like that. We've got our own little things that seem to make us pretty good, don't we? And we feel pretty good about ourselves when we do those things. But to be righteous before God doesn't mean that we've kept our own standards. It means that we've kept his perfect and right standards. The standards that we find in the Bible, the standards that we find in the canon, and the canon means the standard, okay? If you've got a tape measure and you're measuring 13 inches, boy, howdy, it's got to be 13 inches, am I right? The standard tells you if it's 13 inches. The scriptures tell us if something is sin or if something is not sin. And we're all going to give an account to what this book says. And not only that, not only do we need to meet God's standards, but we need to keep God's standards. And none of us can keep day to day to day until the day we die. His perfect, right standards. 
Now, righteousness is required for two, th- for two reasons. Number one, because he is a holy God. He's pure. He's light. And in him are no darkness at all. He cannot look upon sin. Therefore, a sinner cannot come into his presence. It's not like Jesus is, gonna, is trying to be the great buzzkill and only let the elite in and let the non-elite, you know, kick them to the curb. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. He just is pure. He just is light and in him there just can't be darkness just like looking directly at the sun there can't be darkness in the sun there can't be darkness that's why we need righteousness the second reason righteousness is required is because we've been made in god's image you guys remember when he was going to create man the trinity spoke let us create man in our image that man might be image bearers, that we might look like God, that we might act like God, that we might be mirrors that reflect God, that when people see us, they see Jesus. We're just reflecting, and and in that we're glorifying God. We're reflecting glory back to God. He created us to mirror him. The law shows us that we cannot have righteousness in and of ourselves nor can we keep righteousness. Therefore, Jesus died the death that we should have died. But what's just as awesome as that is he lived the life that we should have lived. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He's the man that preached at Westminster Chapel in London from 1939 to 1968. And if you look up his picture online, he just totally looks like this. Okay, so just picture that talking to you right now, okay? He says this, Jesus fulfilled God's law completely, perfectly, and absolutely. Not only that, he's dealt with the penalty meted out by the law upon all sin and upon all sins. He took your guilt and mine upon himself and he bore its punishment. The penalty of the law was meted out upon him so that he has honored the law completely, positively, negatively, actively, and passively. Jesus is the fulfillment of all things, or as Paul has put it, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's the great exchange. It's the righteousness of God. Now, in the righteousness of God and in the great exchange, he doesn't just wipe our slate clean, kick us back to square one, and tell us to do better and try harder. I gave you a fresh start. This is your second chance. That's not what happens in the great exchange. What happens is he imputes his righteousness to you so that past, present, and future All of your sins are forgiven because of what he's done on the cross. Is that awesome or what? Is that exciting or what? On the cross, God was both conservative and liberal. Conservative because he must judge sin. I am pure. I am holy. I am right. I am just. And these people have sinned extremely against me. I cannot be in the presence of it. I have to judge it. And yet you have the liberal side of God at the cross where he says, but I want everybody to be saved. I don't want anybody to perish. So at the cross where my son lays down his life, if anyone would believe in that atonement, in that redemption, 
in that blood that was shed, they will not perish, but have everlasting life. Conservative in that everyone must be judged. Liberal in that everyone can be saved. Awesome. (laughs) In verse 17, we see the righteousness of God is revealed. That's in the continual tense. He's speaking of a continual practice of preaching the gospel. Not only to the lost and to the heathen out there, but to the Christian and the believer in their own lives. The lost and the heathen need to hear the gospel. But the redeemed and those that are being sanctified daily need to hear the gospel continually. Every morning, the second you crack your eyes open, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. That if anyone would believe in him, have faith in him, they too would be seen as sinless before the Father. They too would have power to live a perfect life. And every morning when you crack your eyes open, you receive Jesus through faith every morning. It's not getting saved again. It's being sanctified every day. The gospel, verse 16 tells us, is the power of God unto salvation. Past, present, future. I was saved and justified on that date when I put my faith in Christ. And I'm being sanctified today by the gospel because it's the power of God to be saved. To everyone who currently believes. You guys need that power in your life? Do you need that power to resist sin, to say no to temptation, to walk in victory, to open up your mouth and obey the great commission? Do you need power? You need the gospel. And the gospel is all about what he has done in his power and in his perfection. And at no point does it have to do with your power and your perfection. Preach the gospel continually to yourself and then go and preach it to others. It's in the continual sense. There's a continual preaching of the gospel that needs to be happening. And it's in the perfect tense. It's completed at the cross. God's decisive action in history fulfilled righteousness once and for all. Douglas Moo said that the righteousness of God, first of all, is the saving intervention of God in history predicted by the prophets manifested by God at the cross and constantly made effective by the preaching of the gospel. So the intervention of God in history predicted by the prophets manifested at God at the cross and constantly made effective by the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is the power, the dynamite of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it is made more and more and more constantly made effective every time we preach it. And yes, you get to preach to yourself. (laughs) So, righteousness. Secondly today, faith. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Some translations put it, From faith leading to faith. Faith speaks of believing, trusting, placing one's full weight upon. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned, I've just been 
you know, going around in my heart that uh, there was a missionary that went to an, an unknown people group to preach the gospel. And when he got there, he found that while they had a language, they had no written language. And he had felt the burden of the Lord on his heart to make a Bible for these people that they could have the scriptures in their language. And so as he went about to write a Bible, he also had to write out the language. And as he came to the term in the scriptures for believe, he had no word to use, not even really anything that was close to it. And so for months, he just wrestled with what could I use to express that, that, you know, response to the good news, that believing, that faith, that trust. What could I use? What word? Should I make up a word? And one day as they were hacking their way through the jungle, they came across a big tree laying across the path. And one of the natives just went and was so tired, he just plopped himself upon this log. And he said, bingo, bingo. He says, the word that I will use for believe will be to rest upon, to rest one's full weight upon. So how is the righteousness of God revealed? It's revealed, it's unveiled from faith to faith. From rest to rest, from trusting to trusting, from believing to believing, from placing one's full weight upon Christ to 20 years later, still placing one's full weight upon Christ. It never, not even once, becomes about what you and what you can do. It's always about him. The NIV says it this way, the righteousness God has revealed by faith from first to last. It's all about trusting in him. Faith is the vehicle that brings the righteousness of God to people. And sadly, many Christians, myself included, we start out in grace and we love that justification through, you know, by grace, through faith. And we love that day that we've been justified, don't we? And yet, pretty much by the next day, we start feeling like we've got to do something to earn God's love, to earn God's favor, to earn that right place in heaven. But that's not how the righteousness of God is revealed. It's faith and nothing but faith that gives us right standing before God. And of course, that's not faith in faith. But it's faith in what Christ has done. Faith is not needed at the beginning and not at the end. It's needed the whole time. One man said, faith is not God's stimulus package to boost the economy of your righteousness. It's not just something that boosts it and helps it get you going so that you kind of got some momentum. Now I can finally do it by myself. It's not about you. It's not about self. It's about him. We will never have a righteousness of our own. If you'll flip over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. It says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith, in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. 
And so there's that controversy within us, within you and within me. If you're a Christian here today, there's that weird sinful part of us that wants to create our own righteousness. This was happening in Galatia. In Galatians, flip over to that book, Galatians chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. And as you're there, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, faith is always the opposite of everything that is legalistic. It's not, it's not opposite of the law, but it's opposite of everything that is legalistic. And then he says this, faith is the contradiction and negation of every tendency in man to say that his merit is enough. Every time we fall down before the finished work on the cross and the life that Jesus lived and his resurrection, every time we fall down, we're just saying, you know what? I contradict that life that wants to say, my works are enough. My merits are enough. As we fall in faith, we put to death legalism. But there in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, he says, this I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? If you're a New Testament Christian here today, of course you'd say, well, yeah, by faith, right? We received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I was born again through faith, not by works, not by works of the law. And then Paul says, well, then, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Paul says it's foolishness to fall back into legalism. Yes, the day we were justified, we were saved by grace through faith. And that was awesome. That was beautiful. But now I'm going to start working it out. I'm going to finish this in my own energy. Paul says it's foolishness. But the scriptures tell us that it's not only foolish, it's demonic. It's a lie of the enemy to think that we merit ourselves favor of God in the kingdom. Or that we earn the love of God. We earn the pleasure of God. That's, it's demonic. And how many people will go to hell because they think they're getting to heaven because of their good works. Because of what they've done. I may have mentioned this in one of the services last week. But whenever you are asked, how do you know you're going to heaven? So often you say, well, because I did this or I did this or I've been this and I've been this. And that word I tends to creep its way out, doesn't it? I've been this since I've been this many years old. And I've done this since and I, and I hear this. And, and you know what? Execute the word I, okay? Cross it out and replace it with he or replace it with Jesus. Why do you think you're going to heaven? Because Jesus did this and because Jesus did this and he did this and he lived this and he died this way, but he rose this way. And because of that, I know I'm going to heaven. Let's change the way we talk, huh? Let's get it off of our self-centeredness and onto him, Jesus-centered. Matthew Poole said, he said not here in chapter 1, verse 17, from faith to works or from works to faith, but from faith to faith, only by faith. And because it's only by faith, we will never be able to boast before God. We'll never be able to brag, look what I did, God, aren't I awesome? Because he would just flip that on us and say, yeah, look what you did. <laughs> look what you did. 
Every one of your best works on your best day is garbage before me and my splendor. And I wish you would have just received my gift of splendor. I wish you would have just received my gift of mercy and my gift of righteousness and my gift of perfection. I wish you would have just received it. But because you were proud, your foolish heart was darkened and you glorified yourself rather than glorifying me. Because of faith, righteousness revealed by faith will never be able to brag or boast. It's not about what I could or should do. It's about what Jesus did do and about what he is doing. Dr. Constable said, God's salvation comes to us only by faith. That's true whether we're speaking of justification, that's past salvation from the penalty of sin, or whether we're speaking of practical sanctification, present salvation today from the power of sin, or whether we're speaking of glorification, future salvation from the presence of sin, trusting God results in full salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And may that gospel truth penetrate deeper and deeper and deeper into the core of our heart that we could say like Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation. That's justification. It's the power of, it's the power of sanctification and it's the power of glorification. One Roman Catholic monk wrote, my situation was that although I was an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled by conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would satisfy him. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement at the end of verse 17, that quote from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. That Roman Catholic monk was Martin Luther. And let me read just this part one more time. Then I grasped, just close your eyes, listen to this, that the justice of God is that rightness by which God justifies us through faith. The righteousness of God, the justice of God, it's seen when we're justified by faith. Genesis 3.11 says that no one is justified by the law, by working. It's evident for the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 is what is quoted here. Actually, it's chapter 2 verse 4. But if you'll flip over there to Habakkuk, that's who Paul quotes here. Let's go to chapter 1. We'll just read the first four verses there. Let's just go back to 607 BC when Habakkuk was a prophet over Israel. And he was so frustrated because Israel would just, just sin and just repetitive, constant, habitual, without remorse, without sorrow, without repentance. And he became very frustrated. God, why haven't you judged Israel? They're out there sinning their brains out. Where are you, God? And so he asked this question, Habakkuk 1, 1. 
the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to, uh, to trouble? Cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There's strife and contentions arising. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. He's just frustrated. And flip over a chapter to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. He kind of folds his arm. He's like, Lord, what are you going to do about this? And then the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The Lord says, you just wait. You wait, I'm long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. I'm patient. I want all to inherit eternal life. That's why I'm not raining down fire and brimstone right now. I'm giving them a chance for salvation. But you wait for it. The unrighteous, I'm not delighting in them. But those that are right, those that are just, they are the ones that live by faith. Faith is the key to a relationship with God. Not only salvation, not only sanctification, but just trusting in him that what he says is going to go, what he says is going to happen. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. God will judge sinners. It's going to happen, Habakkuk. Faith's the key to that relationship with God. It's been said that faith is the opening of dying lips to receive the water of life. I just picture someone just crawling through the desert for days. You know, all their animals they were riding dropped dead a long time ago. You know, they just, they got their shirt wrapped around their head, trying to make some kind of shade. You know, they're hiding behind like little weeds, you know, trying to get some shade. You know, they're just parched. They're dying of thirst. And here comes someone with just a vat full of water, you know, just, I got it. And just those parched, cracked, trembling, burnt, dry lips, just shaking and quivering. And then that first drop goes in there. And refreshment comes. <sighs> what did those lips do? Nothing. In fact, they got them in the trouble. <laughs> oh, good job, lips. You sure brought salvation today. No, oh, I'm just the vehicle that life can come in. I'm just the vehicle. I'm just the conduit. Just water, go in. Water, go in. That's what faith is. Righteousness, come in righteousness come in faith is the key those open lips to receive the water of life we face those trials of life by faith the trouble and hardship make habakkuk rely and trust in god and god's advice to him was that the just will live by faith it's not what we lived by it's what we live by and we can't do it, but Jesus did it. 
So righteousness and faith. And we're going to close today with wrath. Or wath, as Laney would say. Chapter 1, verse 18. And we're kind of just laying a foundation for our next time here in Roman, Romans. But chapter 1, verse 18 through 323 paints, if you will, a black backdrop on the canvas. Okay? Pitch black. It's revealing to us our sin, our depravity, that there's none good, no, not one. None of us seek after God. We've all turned away to our own rebellion and sinful ways. But then chapter 3, verse 24 through chapter 8 brings out the gem of the gospel and sets it over that black ground. And it is a beautiful gem. It is a glorious sparkling, shining gem with so many different facets to it, and it shines. You get to see a little bit of it in these chapters, but man, it's going to come full force once we get to the end of chapter 3. Right now, we're just being shown we're sinners. And verse 18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God never condemns without a just cause. And in this the rest of this chapter, we're going to see three bases for stating the judgment against the pagan heathen world for suppressing God's truth, verse 18, for ignoring God's revelation, verses 19 and 20, and for perverting God's glory, verses 21 through 23. Today, we're just going to look at this suppression of the truth is a cause for God's wrath to come upon us. And so in the gospel, between verses 16 and 18, we see that it's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed to those who have faith in Christ, verse 17. But then the wrath of God is revealed to those who are ungodly, unrighteous, and to those who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Perhaps your translation says, in their wickedness. To suppress means to hold down. The ungodly and the wicked hold down the truth. And the next few verses will tell us it's the truth that they know about God. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. For what may be known about God, God has revealed it to us. We all know in our heart of hearts the truth about who God is and what his attributes are. That he's holy, that he's right. And what do we do about it? We suppress it. We push it down. We know the truth in our hearts, but we don't care, and we push it away. And because of that, the wrath of God is upon us. And when we hear that, there should be a hush in our hearts. That the wrath of God is upon us. Why do we need saving? Why do we need verse 16? This power of God into salvation, great, but why? First and foremost, because the wrath of God is upon the ungodly and upon the unrighteous. God is angry at our sin. He's angry at the way we suppress the truth and push it down. He's angry at the way we hide the truth. The way we twist the truth, the way we distort the truth, 
so that we can just keep living the way we want to live. And guys, I am being preached to just like you are. I'm a sinner. I justify my sin. I twist the truth so that somehow the Bible kind of backs up what I want to do and how I want to live. And because of that attitude in us, the wrath of God will be poured out upon us. Unless the righteousness of God is revealed in you from faith to faith. God is angry at our way of living. Flip over one chapter to Romans 2 verse 8. Why not look at 5 first? Romans 2, 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We all like treasuring things up, right? You realize that if you continue in your unrepentant sin, you're treasuring up for yourself God's wrath? like the force of water pressure up against a dam, and one day to know that dam is going to break, and that water is going to rush through that canyon or or valley or whatever it might be, the wrath of God, it's building up against this Christ-rejecting world, and one day, it's going to break. It's going to be poured out. Flip, uh, you know, three verses away, Romans 2.8. Those who are rejecting truth and embracing unrighteousness will be rendered wrath and indignation or fury. That word indignation speaks of a foaming at the mouth and anger against sin. Daniel, we are reading about in chapter 8 how God's fury and indignation will be against the Antichrist on that day. And we just had to stop in the middle. Well, I just had to stop. Maybe you guys didn't want to stop. I had to stop in the middle of prayer because that, or in the middle of uh, the Bible study and pray because that word indignation speaks of God foaming at the mouth against our sin. We need to stop and pray. We need to cry out for a hatred for sin. We need to cry out that God would grant repentance. That he would pour out his spirit upon us that we would hate sin, that we would cut off the hands that cause us to sin. God's wrath will be poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. And God's wrath is greater than our wrath. That's why we're told to let vengeance be the Lord's, because only he is good enough to be mad. You know, when we get mad, we sin. We, you know, we cuss, you know, we curse the people. We sin against them in in our retaliation against them. We begin gossiping. You know, we slash their tires. You know, we egg their house. You know, whatever it might be. And much worse than that. But God in his holiness and his purity has the only reason to be mad. And he's the only one who's just enough to pour out wrath. And he's storing it up for that day. It's being revealed in part now, but there will be a day when there won't be any confusion about the wrath of God. Men will be hiding in caves and in mountains, crying out for the wrath of the Lamb to pass over them. And they're furious that the wrath of the Lamb is coming. And so Romans, why are you bringing up salvation? Because the wrath of God is upon the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. In our salvation, yes, we're saved from sin 
Amen. We're saved from guilt and broken relations. But mainly, we need to see praise Jesus. We're saved from wrath. The gospel is the good news that God rescues sinners from God. And in his foreknowledge, in his understanding, he knew, I've got to be just. I've got to pour out wrath because I'm just. But I'm also love. And so I'm going to send my son to take that wrath upon himself. Romans 5, 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Right now we're being made right with God, and that's true and that's biblical. But the question is, will you be saved then from the wrath of God then? Paul says, we shall. We shall be saved from his wrath. The gospel saves us from wrath. And Paul wants us to have a huge care about verse 17 because he knows verse 18 comes after it. He wants us to walk in righteousness that comes through faith so that that wrath won't be upon us. The rest of the book of Romans is going to tell us how he gets a corrupt sinner through the holy righteous judgment unscathed. It's going to be an exciting journey going through this book. As big of problems as earthquakes are and tidal waves and tsunamis and drugs and kids killing kids and wars and thievery and divorce, it's all bad, but they're all just symptoms of the big problem. Sinners are in rebellion against the living God, twisting the truth, suppressing the truth, and the wrath of God abides on them. And when we think about an omniscient, all-powerful God pouring out his wrath on the earth, No natural disaster can even come close. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that if anyone would believe on him, they would not perish but have everlasting life. The story of Martin Luther, that Roman Catholic monk, is put another way in another account. And it says that Martin Luther hated Verse 17, until he finally got it, okay? You know, basically he's saying, I'm unrighteous, God is righteous, there's a huge gap between us. And here's how another account says, he says, I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the book of Romans. But a single word in chapter 1, verse 17, stood in my way. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which I'd been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. And if that's all it is, we're all condemned, aren't we? Mentioned at the beginning of the study. Luther hated it because there was no hope there. How is it the gospel? How's it the good news? Sinners are going to be condemned. The answer is that God demands righteousness, and we don't have it. So our only hope is that God would give to us the righteousness that he demands from us. He requires it. We don't have it. So he gives it. 
That's the gospel. That's the gospel of grace, the free gift of salvation. It means we can't perform, create our own righteousness, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and present our own righteousness. It's not possible. The hope is the righteousness that demanded from us, that's demanded from us, is offered to us to be received by faith. And so he went on to say, Martin Luther, he ended up not hating the verse. He says, thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importantly upon Paul at Romans 1.17. The account means he beat on the book. What is with verse 17? At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context and the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness is revealed as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is the righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. I get goosebumps every time I say that. When you think of this man all night long, literally beating himself with a whip, trying to purge away his sin, trying to close that gap between his unrighteousness and God's righteousness. And night and day, putting effort into knowing who God is. And verse 17, him hating it until he looked at the context that the just shall live just by faith. Opening those parched lips to receive the water of salvation. And maybe today, you would open your parched lips. You would receive that free gift of grace, the grace of God. That you would crucify the word I. And you would receive the word he. He did it. He's doing it. He paid it. And that today, we can have Stuart come on up. That today, you could be born again. If you're not a Christian, as you came in through those doors, just right now where you're at, you can put your things aside. We can move towards prayer right now. If you walk through those doors today and you're not a Christian, the wrath of God is upon you. And just for the reason today that we looked at today, that you suppress the truth about who he is. You need to be saved. You need salvation. And that comes from faith today to faith tomorrow. The righteousness, the just shall live by faith. And if you today would just have, like Jesus said, faith the size of a mustard seed, just reach out and just 
grasp that gift that he's extending to you. Just open those parched lips just with the faith that there's water there. And just say, Lord Jesus, I don't get it all. But today, I want the great exchange to happen in my life. I want to exchange my sin and shame and guilt and condemnation for your salvation and justification and redemption and reconciliation and sanctification and glory. I want all of those things to be upon me, Lord. Because of what you did. Lord, I don't know everything about what there's to know. But I know that it's because of what you did. That right now, I'm saved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me from the wrath of God. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the wrath of God upon yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus. If you prayed that prayer in your heart, right now, you just want to pray that prayer in your heart. I just encourage you right now just to lift up your hand where you're at. Just respond to the Lord and say, Lord, this is me. Right here, Lord. I've been trying to make it on my own, on my own merit, on my own earnings, on my own worth, on my own works. Lord, that'll never measure up. So just lift up your hand right now in response to the Lord. There's something glorious about physically responding that water of life today. It's where you're at. Say, Lord, I receive salvation through Christ Jesus. Put your spirit in me, Lord. Empower me and enable me to live a life worthy of this good news I've heard today. Prayer of faith will save the lost today. Cry that out to him. If you're here today and you're a Christian, every single one of us, thank you, Lord, for preaching the gospel to us today. Just afresh today, let's put our trust in his righteousness. Get our eyes off of ourselves and off of the I, I, I. Let's get it onto him, him, him. And all of this doctrine and all of this theology man it just makes us want to worship you jesus it makes us want to praise i can have the prayer team come on forward and if anyone needs prayer just for whatever reason you can come up today if the message just struck home and you just need prayer for these areas we've talked about come forward we'll have the prayer team come on up those that go to the pulse will come up and pray for you and Let's stand right now and let's worship Jesus.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.